0: One of the unique aspects when it comes to being a Christian, it comes down to this week for us. We trace our heritage back to one amazing week that so many things happened on. We're talking about, you know, Palm Sunday where where Jesus comes down to Jerusalem. It's a big celebration. I mean, they're putting down the palms and, and he's crying over Jerusalem wishing that they would come to him. And they're celebrating. They're hoping he's their king, hoping he's, he will come against the Romans at that point. And then it, later on that week, he's he beginning uh, to teach in the temple, and he, and he gets to a point where he says, guys, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves, and he gets upset with them in the temple uh, complex area. But this week really changed everything. And a most bizarre thing happens on Thursday evening. Our leader, our founder, our God is taken into custody. This is a very unusual thought. And many times we, we, we kind of really just kind of run right past it as we're reading it. We're like, oh yeah, we know the story. You know, he was arrested. But here God himself is allowing him. He's allowing, I mean, God is being bound by rope that he actually created. You see what I'm saying? The Creator is allowing His creation to tie Him up, even though He created that substance that makes ropes. Ten thousand angels are ready to bust through, and, and, but they're being held back. They're wanting to rescue Him. But He tells them no. Jesus goes through this humiliation over and over again. Through that night and into the day, until He was executed at 3 p.m. on a Roman cross. They executed one of the most, well, the most innocent man ever to live. And yet, it's not a travesty. It's not a travesty. You know, we look at it as, as we call it Good Friday for a reason. Because it's it's a great thing that God allowed himself to do this because of the result. It was not an injustice. It was actually planned by God. And it was the reason why he planned it was to save us as humans, to be able to come to him. What a glorious thing that is. The scriptures say that we are like sheep that have gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own wicked way. I would agree with that. I would look at our people, I look at our news, I read our magazines, I read our our newspapers, and and I would agree that people have gone their own wicked way. Wouldn't you agree to that? Yet in the middle of it, here comes Jesus. And like the Apostle Paul says, he comes because we were dead, literally dead. I can remember this being said to me at one point about 1 a.m. in the morning. Now, I had a curfew at 12 midnight. My parents never, never stayed up because they knew, I mean, I was a good kid. I, contrary to what you may think, I was actually a good kid. I would always make it home. I mean, 12, 12.05, okay, but, but I mean, I knew because if I didn't, my dad would, you know, get me. So there was that healthy fear there. Well, the one day I was out with my friend Daryl and we stayed out late. And it happens to be the one and only time my uncle comes in the town. They're up at one o'clock when I come walking in. And my dad just shakes his head and looks at me and says, Dead man walking. (laughs) Just keep going to your room, dead man walking. Dead man. We were dead to our sins. We were dead because of what we have done, the sin that we've done in our life. Paul is saying you know, this in a, in a much more significant way than my dad said it to me as a teenager. But it just, dumped, it just jumped out at me that we were dead to our sins. Paul was, was talking to people who were alive. And it's a fascinating spiritual thing to be alive yet know that we are dead. But then to also know that God brought us back to life. He forgave us of our sins that are in our life. All we have to do is ask for that. He has paid for those sins. He's canceled the charge of the legal indebted, well, you know, that we were indebted to, which condemned us when he was nailed to the cross. And in doing so, our accusers, our accusers defeating them in a, in a public triumph. So this helps explain how a man who died in 30 AD relates to our lives today and relates to death today. If we could wrap our minds around this as Christians, if we could start to understand what Paul is trying to talk about, what Jesus is talking about, Paul just said that Jesus disarmed our accuser. Have you ever been accused of something? Jesus took away the case from the prosecuting attorney. He just took the weapons out of Satan's hands. He just disarmed his enemy. The only way the enemy can punish us is if we hand him another weapon. And unfortunately, we too often do that. When we become fully aware of what this means as believers and followers, then not only our, our fear of death starts to dissipate, you know, we become less fearful of, of the life to come and, and the death that wraps around us, but not only that, but our fear of life dissipates. Our fear of life dissipates. We trace everything back in life. To, you know, most of our problems are fear based, right? We're fearful of growing up or we're fearful of moving or taking a new job or, you know, anything that happens, we are fearful. We're fearful to go to the doctor to get well because we don't want the doctor to tell us that we're going to die, right? We try to stay out of the hospital. We try not to go to the doctor. I mean, I'm, you know, other than my weight, I'm a pretty healthy person. And, and I, you know, I, I went to my doctors last week going through the adoption process. We have to get all these tests run and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, now they've switched over to electronic records. And, and the nurse, I mean, he's been my doctor since 2006. And the nurse goes, oh, is this the first time you've ever been to, our doc- to your doctor? I'm like, no, you just haven't done the electronic. No- I haven't been here since electronic notes. I don't avoid the doctor. I just don't necessarily need to go, so therefore I don't. We don't want to do those things. But the problem is this type of fear The fear of life can rob us of our life. And if we can be really freed from our fears, I mean, think about it. Jesus on that weekend battled with evil. That Friday afternoon through Sunday, he fought with evilness. He had a battle and he wins and he raises from the dead. And what he brings to us is a guarantee of life. So we can go through life with this guarantee. We need to understand that Jesus took some things away from the devil on that weekend. I mean, we understand and we know how powerful the devil is. I mean, just look around at the evilness in this world. We understand that. He is the great accuser, and he likes to keep us in a state of hopelessness. He likes to keep us in a state of, of disappointment, of you know, physical or mental illness, or, or relational pain, or financial struggle. The devil will keep throwing these things at us over and over. And for some reason, we keep giving them ammunition to throw at us, don't we? To tell us, God doesn't care for you. This Jesus stuff is just a bunch of bull. That is ridiculous. Look at all those Christians. Their lives aren't even better. Why would you even bother? That's what the devil is trying to say. Then Easter comes around, and while everybody else is celebrating you know, bunnies that lay chocolate eggs in our lawns for some reason, we're celebrating the death and the resurrection of God who brought life to us, that brought life into death and brought life to afterlife. And when our accuser returns to us, as he often does, and he looks at us and says, who do you think you are? you ever had that said to you how dare you preach to us we know you who do you think you are you're never going to amount to anything after what you did and we just give in and he uses these tools to shame us he uses it like a whip to humiliate me to strip me down to hang me on a cross and then we start to go and we go wait a second This penalty has already been paid. The cross thing has already been done. I know this. And we start to look to, to return to Jesus and we start to ask this. Jesus, was my sin nailed to the cross? And his answer is yes, yes. Well, Jesus, how do I know it's real? Because I rose from the grave. That's how you know it's real. Well, how do I know that you have the power to forgive me? Because I prove that power by getting out of that grave. I have the keys. You see, the birth and the life and the cross and the tomb are all equally important as believers. They're all equally important. You can't have one without the other. They all go together. And the cross is the sacrifice and the tomb is the proof. The tomb is the life. It is empty. And because it's empty, it proves our faith is full. You know, you can have faith in things that are empty, can't you? You can have a lot of faith in empty things. We'll find out later, man, I shouldn't put my faith there. This is an empty thing that you can have your faith in. Because it's empty for a reason. Because he beat death. At the end of the day, when you're standing before God, and the accuser wants you. The accuser starts to accuse you. We kind of tuck right in behind Jesus. And he looks at us and says, don't worry, Alan. I got this. And we say, I'm glad because that accuser, oh, I, he, I've heard about him. I've seen his work. And Jesus says, oh, him, I've already defeated him. He's easy. You see, we get this in our life as Christians. We get 100% grace and 100% mercy. It's difficult for, for us as Christians to receive this, not because of God, but because of us. We always start with grace, don't we? Grace is awesome. Grace is great, and it moves into what I call grace plus. We just have a problem believing that God would actually forgive us for the things that we've done in this life, forgive us for the attitudes that we have or still have. So let's review what mercy and grace means. Mercy is when we don't, re- uh, don't, des- uh, don't receive what we deserve. You got that? Mercy is what we don't receive. <laughs> this is why I need to read my notes. Mercy is when we don't receive what we do deserve. You got that? Grace is what we do receive when we don't deserve it. So we humbly come to the cross, and it's ready for us. And the tomb is ready for us. And Jesus is ready for us. The Apostle Paul says it like this in, in Romans 3. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. This is what was happening that day on the cross. God is a just God. He's not going to say, oh, no big deal. Alan, you have a little sin in your life, um, but you can come into my presence. No, he says, Alan, you have to stay away from me until you're pure. Well, Lord, how do I get pure? Well, you, you call on my son. You rely on my son because he died for your sins and you call him Savior. Therefore, you can enter into my presence because now you're pure. In my own self, I can't go to God. But through Jesus, I get to be with God. The only thing pure is God. So he offered himself as a sacrifice. In doing so, Jesus really reverses religion. Because bad religion is a thing that always says, bring your sacrifice, bring your stuff. Come on, that's not enough. Come on, come on. Deeper in your pocket. Okay. Deeper in all your talents, all your time, your energy. Come on, come on. That's not enough. Come on, more, more. That's what bad religion says. And we just hope it's enough. God reverses that on the cross. He brings a sacrifice he knows that will pay for our sin and offers it to the people. And then we receive it. We, we say, I receive your sacrifice. And the people look at this and they say, that is backwards. But that's what Christianity is. This is what Christians are. This is all we have done. We have received the sacrifice that he has offered up to us. We don't have to beg for the mercy of God. We just receive it. Say this with me. I receive your mercy. I receive your mercy. And then we have to believe it. We just have to receive it. Mercy is we don't get what we deserve, and grace is what we receive when we don't deserve it. I allow you to forgive me, Lord, and I forgive myself. That's the other part of the equation. We have to allow God to to get us to the point where we can forgive ourselves, because too often we allow God to to forgive us, but we never forget it. We're never willing to say, okay, I've messed up, but now I'm going to move on. And through Jesus Christ, through His mercy and through His grace, we can move forward. And if we grab onto that, we start to understand what Easter is about. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The works of the devil are all around us. And when we become a Christian, guess what? The works of the devil are still around you every day. That's just the way life is. As a matter of fact, sometimes they even become worse because now you have a new enemy. Satan never had to worry about you before. But now that you're a follower of the true God, he starts to worry about you, the very enemy of God. So don't ever let anybody teach you the, this Jesus light, the Christianity light. Just accept Jesus and everything in your life will, will be peachy for the rest of your life. It's just going to be wonderful. Wonderful. That works for about 48 hours after you accept Christ. And then the devil makes sure that you understand that all hell is going to break out against you. Why? Because now you're the enemy. So expect it. Celebrate it. Actually recognize it. And then say, I must be saved because it's starting to work. John knew all of this. He saw Jesus die on that day, and he was there when Jesus resurrected, and he lived for about 50 years afterward. He saw the works of the devil, but he also knew that God was uh, what God was doing. He saw the powerful works of the devil, but he also saw the powerful works and the more powerful works of God. John traveled to the, you know, and ends up in, in what we know as, uh, as Turkey and in a town called Ephesus, and he's walking around Ephesus, and and the Romans decide this little old Jewish guy is causing us, you know, is a threat to our society, and he really was a threat to them. They arrest him and send him to an island called Patmos, And, and this is exactly what John really needed, because John was kind of one of those guys, he just worked and worked and worked, and Jesus says, I need you alone so I can get you to write something down, so I'm going to allow this to happen, and John literally was imprisoned on this island. He hadn't seen Jesus physically for about 50 years that we know about. And Jesus says, hey, John, write this to the church. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Jesus has the keys. Now, where did Jesus get those keys from? hell that's how he got out he defeated death what do keys do they open things or they lock things right keys I would ask you all to get out keys but it would take you about five minutes to get back in to, to follow what I'm saying I don't like keys that much I expect everything just to open and close when I walk up to it I don't know why thank you for laughing down there Maria um, but I, I like the least amount of keys as possible but they either keep people in or keep people out. One of the two. Jesus said keys. You don't need keys to break into hell, do you? No. You need keys to get out of, uh, out of, out of jail. And Jesus, your friend, has those keys. This is what we celebrate the devil can no longer lock us up. Now, if you know in this life to, uh, that we have now, in the life to come, he cannot do that. So sometimes when we get locked into, into dark rooms, sometimes it's our own fault, right? We go down a path we shouldn't, we make choices we shouldn't make, and we end up in a place where we're sitting there going, how did I get here, and we go, it was his fault, or her fault, or their fault, and we like to blame everybody else, when we willingly half the time ran down the path. Now, sometimes we get drugged down a path and put in a place that, that, we don't, that we shouldn't be. But Jesus says, all of that is what I call death in this life. Every bit of it. In Easter time, we celebrate the door opening again and we come out of the darkness that we have in this life. Now, does this make sense to you? It makes sense to me. Think about everything people get locked into that is absolutely killing them and causing them to live a life that really is not life sometimes. We even had this, this fear of death. Now, for me, I probably fear pain more than I fear death. You know what I'm saying? Because I know where I'm going. Probably not that unusual. When I die, I want to be like my Uncle Bob who died peacefully while sleeping not like the passengers in his car, screaming. I'm not saying that we should stop fearing death, that we should take dumb risk, but we're to take good risk. I don't cower in this life and never take a risk. I don't sit back and say, well, I can't do anything because you know, I don't hide in the closet. That wouldn't be good. Now, I'm not saying that because you're a Christian, go jump out of a plane without a parachute. Uh, a parachute. That's not wise. Heard a saying the other day, if, you first, if at first you don't succeed, then parachuting is not for you. I better get into Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salmon brought spices so they may, might go and to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw uh, that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting on the right side, and they were very alarmed. Now remember, you know, uh, they had seen Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus place the, you know, his body there in the tomb. They'd seen them wrapped up, and Jesus is now gone. The stone is rolled away. The body is not there, and there's this young man sitting there in white robes, and he has the nerve to say to them, don't be alarmed. You were looking for Jesus of Nazarene, uh, Nazarene. Who was crucified? He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they had laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then there you will see him, just as he has told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. I think I'd run too. They fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It amazes, it amazes me that they didn't say, that no one said, wait wait a second. This is just like he said. Just like he said. Three days he was going to rise from the grave. They didn't think about it. He had said that over and over. Now, in their defense, Jesus had taught them a lot of things that they probably didn't quite catch on to. We have history on our side. They were actually living it. And in John 20, it goes on, the story says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started uh, for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked into, looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first went inside also. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Have you ever been in a crisis where your brain was just going and going and going? Everything just kind of speeds up? I think that's what's, what's kind of happening here. Their mind is just reeling. They're thinking of all the different... Why is he not there? Their mind's just going and going and going. And, the, you know, and they, they go into the tomb, and you know, here's a clear sign that the grave robbers did not take Jesus. The head... The covering from the head that had stuff on it already was folded up neatly. If you were going to go steal a body, would you take the time to fold the headdress? Would you take the time to unwrap it first? Absolutely not. It's almost like Jesus was saying, it's me, guys, it's me, pay attention. It says here on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked and for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now someone's not here. Do you know who? We all know him as Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas went on to, to live a spectacular life, and, but he'll be always known as Doubting Thomas. He actually goes to India uh, and, uh, uh, well, I, okay, I, I'll do it. When he goes to India, they're like, oh, we know about you, you're, you're doubting Thomas. It's the only kind of sort of accent I can do, other than Texan, growing up there, I can always have that, but, but, you know, they're like, oh, we've heard of you, you're doubting Thomas. Now, don't be offended, I have a lot of friends that are from India, so I'm not making fun of them, I actually enjoy the Indians, so, but, you know, how come they don't say stuff like this about Peter, You know, I mean, think about this. Oh, we've heard of you. You rejected Christ. No, Peter gets on, you know, Peter gets to be the Pope, and I, you know, I get to be doubting Thomas. You can imagine it. You know, life can just be cruel sometimes, right? What did Thomas say? Thomas said, I don't believe you guys. I don't believe all of you. What did you guys eat last night? What did you drink? And what I love about Jesus is eight days days later, he shows up to Thomas. And instead of walking in and just whacking Thomas upside the head and said, Why don't you believe? Everybody else does. He says, Hey, Tom, come over here. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at me. Now do you believe? And he's like, My Lord, my God. Jesus treats Peter the same way. And how Peter really folded in the face of the enemy. I mean, he just really just folded when people said, weren't you, with Christ? weren't you one of his followers? And Peter's like, oh, no, 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 that wasn't, no, uh-uh. It's ironic he's the first one to see the, the folding headdress when he folded in the face of the enemy. I think Jesus would have talked to Judas if Judas would have given him a chance, but he didn't. Jesus' little brother, James, who grew up in the same household as the Son of God, that refused to follow him. Jesus has a private conversation with him. And James becomes one one of the most amazing leaders in the first century church. Why? Is it because he was just so awesome? No, because of the mercy and the grace of God in his life. That's why. See, our God is a God of second chances. And sometimes third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, and it keeps going and going and going. That is our God. That is His nature. So, for the next 40 days, hundreds of people saw Jesus. So, by the time Peter reaches or preaches in public in Jerusalem, you know, they're not sitting there going, What is he talking about? Man, raising from the grave. I don't know. Jesus' character. No, they're actually listening because they know what happened. There was nobody to say, "Um, Excuse me, that didn't really happen. They all knew it happened. They knew that he rose from the grave. They weren't followers, but they couldn't explain what happened. His resurrection proves who he says he is. That he could do what he said he could do. So the empty cross also goes with the empty tomb. For believers, we need to remember the, the empty tomb. We talk about you know, a lot about the cross. But we also need to talk about the empty tomb because they're kind of bookends. They're bookends. They're together. Jesus didn't die. He also killed death. They go together. And if he, you know, he hadn't just come back, we, we would, you know, if he hadn't arose from the grave, we'd just have another guy with a Messiah complex. Another kind of guy that's off his rocker. That hacked off the authorities and they killed him. But because he rose from the grave, because there was witnesses, because he told us beforehand what he was going to do, and he did it, we have what we call a celebration of Easter. Because he rose from the uh, grave. The death of Christ paid for our sins so we can have life in Christ. In Colossians uh, 3 it says, since then, you have, heard, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Another part of the scripture says, be in the world, but not be of the world. Love the old Petra song, not of this world. Now you always see the N-O-T-W, not of this world on cars, you know. But I go back to the Petra days, you know, back in the 80s. Be in the world, but not of this world. Because the stench of death is all around us. But when we come into it, we bring what the the writer of Hebrew calls a sweet, perfuming fragrance into the world, a preserving fragrance where we go. If you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He is the one that took my shame and put it on the cross. He is the one that hung naked there on the cross so we didn't have to. He was wrapped in royal robes of righteousness and tells the world to leave us alone. That's an amazing thing. So persevere here. It says when Christ who is, who is in your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 1 Peter, it says, Praise be be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Happy Easter, everyone, right there. Happy Easter. In the resurrection, He released a living hope that we hold on to. And we need to hold on to that thing with our dear life. You know what I'm saying? Because too often we reach for other things and we forget about this part. We need to hold on to God, because this world offers no guarantees. We do not know when we will die. I wish I knew. I wish I had a calendar. There's things I'd like to get done. And adopting this child, Lisa and I sat down and okay, okay, I'm lying. Lisa sat down and she made a list of everything we needed to get done before this child comes. We're knocking off things off the list. If I knew when I was going to die, I would make a list, but I don't. Because in the middle of that, we have no guarantees. But the guarantee that we do have is what happens after our death. We get to go be with God. Amen? Amen. That's right. That's right. He rose from the grave and defeated death. Therefore, if we believe in Him, we defeat death also. Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome. People he has never met. He hadn't been there yet. But he knows the Roman church and, and the leaders in that church. And he knows them and he says, Hey guys, you, you, need to, you need to listen. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will we not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Nobody can bring charges. No one. People will accuse us. The devil will accuse us. But we know who's going to win, right? We know who's going to win. We have them standing with God. We have a right standing with God. We are righteous in front of God. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Nobody. God is the only one who has the right to condemn us, and he doesn't. That's a beautiful picture because Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to this life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Think about this. The Father sends Jesus to take our sins. Put Him up on the cross and He died for us and now Jesus, even though He took all my junky sin, is up there Interceding for me? I mean, if you want to call it a religion, what a religion this is. He is up there praying for me right now, like he's praying for you. Every other religion says, Give me, give me, give me. And Jesus is here to say, Receive, receive, receive. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For you for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height or death or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be ever, 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 ever. Be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah, right? If you're a follower of God, nothing can can separate you from God. That is what we celebrate on Easter. That is why we gather together on every Sunday and we worship the Lord, either here or hopefully somewhere else. Because if we choose to follow him, he chooses to bless us with his mercy and his grace that covers our sin. All we have to do is ask for his blessing. All we have to do is ask for his forgiveness. But it all begins with one thing, us accepting who he is and what he means to our life. It means accepting that. Amen? Well, let's stand as the worship team comes up and let me bless you guys. We celebrate this wonderful Easter. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are. We are so thankful that you came and died on this, on this earth. That some would say this God-forsaken earth, but you didn't forsake the earth. You came to save us. You created it for us, and you wanted to have a relationship with us, so you sent your Son. And we're so thankful for that. We pray that we don't leave your Son on the cross. We pray that we don't leave your Son in the tomb. We pray that we don't leave him on the shelf in our home. That when we drive away from our house, we don't leave him at home. That we take him with us everywhere and use him in our life to make wonderful decisions. That when we mess up, we come to you, Lord, and we say, please forgive me. And you say, I already have. And you forget about that sin. We're so thankful for that, Lord. We love you for that. Now the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord's face shine down upon you, and may this Easter present a change in your life that's, that's God-changing, that you go out into this world not only this week, not only this month, but for the rest of your life, knowing that you're secure in the faith that you have through Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.